City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar, playwright, director, choreographer Again, I am pleased to welcome you to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. These are coming to you from the new Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Now, in the fifth year, these seminars give you an opportunity to look behind the veil and share with the panelists their experiences in professional theatre. Today's seminar focuses on playwrights, directors, and choreographers. These are the artists that provide the creative heart of theater, and they give a sense of thrill and life to the legitimate theater. I hope that this discussion will show us how the magic of theater is created. I'm Isabel Stevenson, chairman of the board of the America Theater Wing, and I would now like to introduce our moderator for this seminar, president of the Rogers and Hammerstein organization, and an active member of the board of the America Theater Wing, Theodore Chapin. Ted, would you now take over? Yes. Thank you, Isabel. Uh, as Isabel said, uh, this uh, discussion this morning is on directors, choreographers, and playwrights. And we have a distinguished and color-coordinated group this morning. <laughs> I'd like to introduce them to you from my right. David Auburn, playwright, author of Proof. George Faison, director and choreographer, in this instance director of For Colored Girls that recently played at the American Place Theater. David Marquez, choreographer about to go into rehearsal with The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Charles Bush, playwright of The Tale of the Allergist's Wife. Jerry Mitchell, choreographer of The Full Monty. And John Rando, director of The Dinner Party. And I want to start this off by asking John the first question. Um, <laughs> it's not that funny yet. <laughs> um, the dinner party played what I think is a slightly odd but still traditional role of opening out of town before coming to, to Broadway. And if I'm right, it was in Los Angeles and was supposed to come, but that the plan was stopped and changed? Yeah. Well, not exactly. Uh, Neil Simon, this is Neil Simon's play. And when, he, when we first talked about doing the play, and he worked with Gordon Davidson at the Mark Taper uh, forum in LA. He, he literally said, look, I just want to put on a play, um, um, like, like any playwright might want to do someplace. It happened to be in Los Angeles, that's where Neil lives. And um, we had no real intentions of, no really concrete intentions of coming to New York. There was no theater set up, there was nothing like that. It was basically to see what this play is. The dinner party, Neil Simon's The Dinner Party is really a, a a kind of departure for Neil in, in his writing, and it's a new kind, new territory that he he was exploring. So, you know, when we did it um, out in L.A., it had this uh, wonderful audience response. The audience seemed to love it. The press wasn't sure about it. Some were very positive and very mixed. Um, and but it had a terrific run, sold out run. In fact, we had ad shows in L.A. and. Um, 
The last weekend that we performed there, we performed, I think, eight weeks. The last weekend we performed there, th uh, the producers from the Kennedy Center in Washington, D.C. came to see the show. They fell in love with it, and they said, we want you to come and do the play in Washington, D.C. This was January uh, in two, uh, 2000 when we had done it in L.A. So this summer, we, we had a chance to do it again at the Kennedy Center. Um, we had to change some of the cast members because of scheduling. Um, and, um, and Neil did a lot of rewrite on it, and, and we went from what was, Mark Taper Forum is this enormous thrust stage, and we went from a thrust to a proscenium stage, um, which changed the play dramatically. Um, Neil did some rewrites, uh, actually fairly extensive, and we had these cast changes, and it was a tremendous success in Washington, D.C. Audiences loved it, and press loved it, and, um, and it was only, we thought we were going for a summer vacation, really. We thought, well, this will be fun. We'll be in D.C. In, in the early summertime. It might be really nice, you know. Um, and, and that's what we thought as sort of a summer theater. And by the time we had opened and, and we were getting the kind of response we got, uh, suddenly uh, um, the producers from New York uh, now uh, became interested. And, and that's how that happened. So now we're at the Music Box, you know, here in New York. And it's uh, quite, a, quite a journey for the play. So the, the, the Kennedy Center turned out to be a pre-Broadway, but it wasn't intended to be that. Was not intended, no, no. Had no intentions. Although, you know, this is Neil Simon we're talking about. I mean, you <laughs> know, but the last play he did was off-Broadway, and it sort of seemed like he was trying to, to yeah. venture into slightly different yeah. ways of doing his show. I mean, I mean, for him, it really is about the writing and about how the audience responds to his writing. And, um, and I think that's, that's what he really wanted. I mean, he's... he's, he's He's had a tremendous career, and as he keeps reminding, uh, he, he, as he told me, uh, you know, he doesn't really need to do another play, but, you know, he can't help himself. I mean, he's so, such an extraordinary writer. I mean, it really is amazing. Um, and uh, so... I, I was lucky enough to have an experience early in my life, and I've, I remember standing in the back of the theater with Neil Simon, and to listen to the way he was listening to every single expression that audience made. Yeah. And there was one line he couldn't get. He couldn't figure out the word that everybody would understand. Yeah. And he just finally had to give up on it. He yeah. said, okay, you know, they all, they, you know, you'd see the audience go, ha, ha, ha. What did he say? <laughs> 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 it, you, it, it is amazing. I mean, he really is. He's like an amazing radar. And when you think about it, since the early 60s, writing plays and, and listening to audiences from that time to our present time, it's extraordinary, yeah. his career. Um, Yes, and we do have that. And then um, uh, he used to talk about pacing, back, you know, back in the back of the house. He doesn't do that anymore. He still sits, but <laughs> I pace. So you know, between me pacing and him sitting, <laughs> we're both listening. Now, Jerry, the the Full Monty did have a fairly classic, out of town. Although it was a long way out of town, but there was uh, a plan. how did that all come about? <laughs> there was a plan. There was a plan. Um, I got involved with the Full Monty, I guess, a uh, little over a year ago, maybe a year and three months ago got a call from Jack O'Brien. He said, I'd like you to choreograph the show. And I said, I would love to choreograph the show. And if you wouldn't have asked me, I would have been heartbroken, <laughs> uh, since I teach everyone in town how to strip once a year for Broadway Paris. <laughs> um, so, uh, so the plan was, we all met in, in, in San Diego, uh, Terrence McNally, Jack O'Brien, David Yazbek, myself, and um, our two producers, Lindsay Law and Tom Hall. And we spent a week sort of talking about the show and how we might adapt it for the stage. Uh, it was always Terrence's plan to uh, not put it in Sheffield and put it in Buffalo, uh, upstate New York, and 
you know, where would songs go, all that. So we spent a good time together. Then we, then we went away, and Terrence had already written a first draft, and David had worked on a few songs, I think four. And we came back to New York in the fall, in uh, September, and we did a two-week reading of what was written in both music and uh, script. And after that two-week reading, I spent two weeks in a dance studio with uh, some dancers working on some ideas, and uh, Zane Mark, the dance arranger, and uh, then we got together for another two-week reading in the spring, and then we went out to San Diego. We did the show in San Diego, which was you know, a heaven sent to be able to work on a new Broadway show in that sort of atmosphere. Um, and the plan was always to do the show there, open it, continue to work on it, make changes. Although when we opened the show, it was pretty much everybody was amazed and, uh, mm. you know, the audiences were like, yeah. like you're, they were just unbelievably um, in our corner and rooting for us. And. So we made we, we didn't stop working even with all of that we continued to work rewrite da 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 and uh, then we came to New York which was always the plan a year and a couple of months later and continued to work and now we're open and hopefully we'll be around for a while yeah, I think so <laughs> a silly question why Buffalo uh, why, why not Buffalo? Birmingham or I don't know. You'd have to ask Terrence that question. Okay. I mean, you know, I think working class is working class. Uh, no matter where it is, and that's sort of the sort of what the play really, s the musical really talks about is you know it reaches it, you know everybody comes to the Full Monty thinking they're going to see stripping, woo we're going to see stripping, <laughs> and then you leave the Full Monty and you say, I, I listen to a story about guys who you know are down and out and they succeed, they somehow succeed, and and they're average Joes, and everybody gets a chance to root for them, and that that gets that's a different feeling yeah. than stripping. <laughs> I was in London recently, and somebody asked me about uh, how around the opening, and there was conjecture as to whether the Full Monty musical, when it goes to London, will it be Buffalo? Yes, it will be Buffalo. <laughs> it will stay. <laughs> I think Sheffield and Buffalo probably have a lot in common. <laughs> and I, I also noticed that that the two producers, and kind of an extraordinary, risky venture, and I don't know, I'm curious as to where in the process. They both basically left their jobs to focus on the Full Monty and the life of the Full Monty. Lindsay Law from Searchlight Films right. and Tom Hall, who was the managing director of the Old Globe. Well, Lindsay and uh, Jack O'Brien and Lindsay have a long history. Um, Lindsay used to uh, produce theater for uh, PBS, for Channel 13, American Playhouse. And Lindsay's a, you know, a huge fan of the theater. And then he started to do these movies. And uh, there's an article in the Times today about it. Actually, he felt like, you know, I had actually gotten the call two years ago from another producer in New York asking me if I would be interested in choreographing the full Monty. They were going to get the rights to the show. And mm -hmm. they wanted me to do it because they also had seen Broadway Bears. And, um, and they said, you're the perfect person to choreograph it. This was two years before I got the call from Jack and, Li and Lindsay and Tom. Did you get the call from an agent or from the producer? No, from character? Jack O'Brien. Jack O'Brien mm -hmm. called me directly. Uh, Manny Eisenberg had introduced me to Jack O'Brien when I was the associate choreographer to Jerome Robbins on Jerome Robbins Broadway. And he said, you must work together. The two of you must work together. Well, that was 1989. So Jack mm -hmm. and I tried to do a revival of, Caris of uh, Carnival, which never happened. Then we tried to do How the Grinch Stole Christmas, which he's doing at his theater, and I couldn't do it. And I was, I was doing Charlie Brown at the time. And, uh, and the third one was a charm. Mm, that's <laughs> great. 
It's interesting that both David and Charles have plays that played what are what has now become a more standard quote out of town engagement because they were both placed on by the Manhattan Theater Club. Um, does underneath City Center on Fifty Sixth Street count as out of town? <laughs> <laughs> Some days it feels like out of town, I mean, <laughs> which is what's great about it. You have, I mean, it's a very safe place to put on a show because. Um, it's a nonprofit theater, obviously, and uh, they do a great job of making you feel very comfortable there and keeping you focused on doing the work. And you have a subscriber base, which gives you a certain amount of kind of safety. Um, you know there are going to be people sitting in the theater on the first day of previews, you know, a lot of people. Um, so it's, you know, it feels good. I mean, you know you're going to get New York critics coming in and New York audiences, which is the flip side of it. So in a, in a way, it kind of combines the two worlds. And did you... Um did you know at the time that it was going to transfer? How did that happen? No, we didn't know at all. I mean, um, we thought we were in there for the two and a half months or whatever it is. It's the standard MTC run. And about halfway through, we started to get a few hints that people were interested. Ultimately, it was Jujamson Theaters coming to us and saying, we have the Walter Kerr Theater, which we'll offer you for this show. And if you can bring other investors on board. So that was what kind of got the ball rolling. But uh, no, we had no idea. I mean, when I, certainly when I wrote the play, I never dreamed it would go to Broadway. I was really just hoping I could find somebody to put it on. I didn't know, <laughs> I didn't know who it would be. Um, so I felt excited when MTC said they'd do it and uh, you know, had no real expectation that it would go anywhere after that. Were they the first to do the show or had it been done before? They were the first to do a production. I had a, I had a kind of workshop of it done at the George Street Playhouse in New Jersey, but it was a week. Um, so this, w yeah, this was the this was the premiere production. Well, that's great. And how did the tale of the allergist's wife come to well, the Manhattan Theater Club? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, a, a couple years ago, I wrote the book to a, a musical called The Green Heart, and um, uh, Rusty McGee wrote the music and lyrics. And it wasn't very well received at all, but I. I um, established a good relationship with Lynn Meadow, who's the artistic director of Manhattan Theater Club. And the opening night, uh, after the reviews came out, and they were, you know, we knew that, that was kind of, you know, curtains for that show, uh, <laughs> she said to me that, that she'd love to produce my next play, whatever it was. And, you know, I, I, I had nothing in the trunk. I, I, I never had anything in my trunk. Uh, old, go write it. Old, wig, <laughs> old wigs and a couple, you know, pairs of shoes. That's the so, same uh, trunk. Yeah. So, but I thought that was an amazing gesture of faith, to, you know. Uh, so um, I thought, all right, I'll write you a play. And um, uh, I had a character. I, I did a, a, a one-man show a couple years ago called Flipping My Wig, and there was a, uh, I did kind of a six-minute monologue in that show where I played this very ra raging, over-articulate um, Upper West Side housewife who <laughs> finally, that since her kids are grown, she can finally express herself creatively and she uh, does her, um, her tribute to Edith Piaf at a little club in the village. <laughs> and, uh, anyway, it was kind of the best six minutes of my career and I always thought that she'd be a great character to um, you know, evolve into a play and it was just very hard <coughs> finding a plot to contain her. <laughs> and this was a, uh, you know, a great opportunity, and, and uh, yeah, so we did it at MTC, uh, not with the idea that it would suddenly would, would transfer, but uh, uh, when we opened and we got these marvelous reviews, immediately there was like, oh. Had there been oh. workshops of it prior to that, or was, it th was the script done and they said sort of, let's do it, let's um, produce it? We did, you know, we, uh, did readings every once in a while, you know, and uh, well, we wanted Linda Lavin, I kind of wrote it for Linda Lavin, and, uh, and then she kind of 
kept us at, at bay for about a year. And I just was outrageous. I just pursued this woman. I stalked her <laughs> and, uh, from coast to coast. I, 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 I led her. I, I found her at Joe Allen's one night. I attacked her there. And I, I heard she was doing a play in, in L.A. And I, you know, I ended up in, in Los Angeles at the same time and got her there. And, and finally, she just she buckled. And so she, uh, yeah. To get rid of you attacking her, she said, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll do the play, I'll do it, yeah. See, decisions are always made for artistic reasons, right? Yeah, yeah, but we did different readings of it, and uh, so the, sh the play was in pretty good shape by the time uh, we started rehearsing. I think that's great. It's sort of, in a way, it's sort of a, a bunch of shows that are done, that acknowledge that the old school of sort of, when, it, when it's ready, it gets done. Yeah. It doesn't get workshopped to death and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. yeah. Now, I haven't avoided the choreographers here, but uh, mm -hmm. <laughs> there, there was a, a rumor before that, that actually you, you guys had, perhaps you, George, had given these guys uh, their, their equity he, card? He gave me my equity card. <laughs> I did my first industrial in New York City with George Faison. As I. <laughs> and I'll never forget it. <laughs> <laughs> you can't. Well, I mean, George is here as, as a director, but it's, it's fair to say that you are both a director and a choreographer right. of a lot of Fascinating and right, fascinating and interesting. Well, I produced one of them. That's why. Right, I said that. yeah. <laughs> right, and um, that was a great forum for new, new shows as well. But um, getting back to not expecting something to do any kind of transfer, I did a twenty-fifth, reluctantly, did a twenty-fifth uh, anniversary production of Colored Girls. Um, Irene Lewis down at uh, Center Stage asked me to do. Uh, colored girls, which I didn't like when I first saw because they, of the uh, male bashing that you know <laughs> that you can take from that. But I, I wanted to find a way. As uh, all of us um, sitting here on I this panel, right. <laughs> yes, it is. <laughs> right. I was trying to find a way of making it more accessible to an audience. So I put your mothers in it, your girlfriends, your aunts, your uncles, and so forth. So all of the voices were actually different. So there weren't just a bunch of you know, raving, you know, females running to the stage. So um, we were able to make each one of the poems stand as little vignettes. So we created a world around each one. And uh, since the women were um, all of, uh, ranged from 20 to 60, um, it get, gives you a different reading. So when your mother gives you an advice or when you see a black woman say, I was your colored girl, it resonates in a, in a whole different other way, so people are then begin, then begin to see the brilliance of uh, what Inazaki was trying to do. Because when I first saw it, I said she can't be, you know, this young and speak of some things this, you know, that that required all of this background and this, you know, this time on, on on the planet. So it was, you know, really great. So we opened, and it was very well received down there in Baltimore. And then, uh, the curator from the Schomburg. Uh, you know, just decided to bring us up for a week. So we did that in March. This is January. March we came to, to the Schomburg for a week, and uh, that was very well received. And then we get a call to bring it to the American Place Theater. By June we were running there, so it's like amazing, you know, how, how things can happen, yeah, especially when you can get producers to be moved in such a way. He, this particular uh, producer, Nicola Trenta, who is in charge of Bocce in, uh, in, in Baltimore, is just a friend, so I invited him to come and see it. And he was so devastated by the, you know, the final scene in, in the piece, and how could this all happen? And then six, uh, you know, a couple months later, he 
as to if um, we would be willing to to go that distance. A wonderful actresses, you know, in the in in. Um, it's unfortunate that there are not enough roles, but um, you know, for black actresses that of a certain age or when they, you know, um, can't find work and so forth. But we took this piece and we turned it, you know, completely around. It became very enjoyable for not only the actresses and fulfilling for the actresses, but the audience as well. And I wanted to ask you that because I, I heard you say that it sounds like the director was messing around with the script there, and we have writers on it. <laughs> <laughs> and I was curious to see what. what no, we didn't. No. Um, <laughs> add to it. You know, sometimes uh, you know, yes, uh, a writer will write something that fits perfectly in one mouth. And then there are other things that, that resonate and ricochet because there are many voices and many attitudes you know, involved in that, one, in that one speech and they can be divided. They're kind of schizoid. <laughs> <laughs> but did, did you have freedom to, 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 to Oh yes, because around? I asked Inazaki, I said, okay, after all this badgering and back and forth and so forth, what, who's to blame? <laughs> and she said both of them, men and women. And, th and that, what, that changed it all for me. So I could, I could look at the piece. So uh, in the opening poem uh, where the, uh, the Lady in Brown, which is an earth tone, you know, uh, the Lady in Brown, which is actually the oldest one, she says, somebody, anybody, uh, um, open up your arms and let a black girl in. So we, uh, that way I could make the ritual, I could go to the playground, I could go to the tenements, I could go down the streets, I could go to, to uh, smart like cafes and so forth when like the three women were all after the same man and so forth. Uh, you know, it was just open. I could go to the bayou for Sechita and, and so forth. It, it just so, opened. So uh, the writer responded to your ideas? Terrence McNally was very much the same way on the Full Monty with Jack O'Brien and myself because we were trying to take a film, uh, a, a script that was first made popular on film and transferred to the stage. And as a choreographer, there are a lot of scenes, one in particular that I can mention, the hot stuff scene mm -hmm. from the movie that I said to my, uh, you know, incredible <laughs> talented pals, I said, guys, we ain't going to be able to do this on stage. First of all, the audience is going to expect it, and it's going to, and there's no way we can top the movie. So we have to find that beat in the script, because they'll be expecting it, but we have to find it our own way. And one day we were in rehearsal, and we were doing the funeral scene, and I go over to Dean, the drummer, and I say, play, boom, dun, 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 boom. Then I go over to John Conley, and I say, John, on this, go, boom. <laughs> and so they're in the funeral watching the, funer the priest speak, and suddenly down the line you see them all go boom, like they're practicing their strip. So we found the beat in another way and delivered it, but it's one of the toughest things. We had the Jennifer Beals scene, which never you could do on, in the movie. You can't do that on stage. What are you going to do, drop a big projector and show Jennifer Beals dancing? No thanks. <laughs> yeah. Not in the theater. You want something live. So we had to find another way to do that, and that translated to Michael Jordan's ball, which ended the first act, mm. which was originally written in the second act. Yeah. You know, so it's just finding a way to uh, make the script work. So, when, and when the collaboration works, yes. th the best idea wins, well, right? Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> well, the idea that's most appropriate, I think, is is, yeah, yeah. is what I guess, for lack of a better term, wins. <laughs> you all make it sound so easy as to find your way to find another way of presenting something. 
How does it come to you? How, where did you come to know these things? What's your background? Well, where did you learn? Well, I think dancing allows you, oh, you know, um, to create in an empty space, just like a writer. I mean, I mean probably the, mo the loneliest profession is probably being a writer, because yeah. you take on you, mm -hmm. um, all of the emotions and all of the characters, and you're trying to make them make sense, like you were trying to find a play for your character. And it's like uh, you go into a, space, uh, into a studio, there's nothing but the four walls, and you have to create a life and trying to make it, make it happen Did from beginning, study? middle, and end. Is there any place that you study this, or is it just the experience of being in the theater? Well, it's, it's all of your experiences. Yes. It's like um, uh, all of the women that I wanted to contain in Colored Girls are women that I knew. And, you know, and not all of them were black women, so it's like all of the women and all of their shared experiences is, is what it brings to you. And you, then you try to find things that bind them together, and it's their, their um, mutual understanding, I, I, trying I, I, to cope I, I, and deal with men. Also, I do think that, I think what you're saying, though, is we, I, I imagine each one of us has come to the theater in a, our own sort of path. Mm -hmm. You know, there's never one way that, not one sort of trajectory to get into the theater, you know. And so, like, for me, it was kind of an odd thing. You know, I, I always wanted to perform. I didn't really want to be a writer, particularly. I just wanted to be on stage. And I had to find some way to do it because I, was the message I was getting back was that I was a little too offbeat or weird, you know. So, uh, <laughs> so I just, you know, I got, got to be on stage somehow. <coughs> so I started writing my own material, and I, I became a writer kind of out of necessity, and and just kind of hopefully grew into a good writer. But I uh, I started doing um, right out of college uh, a one man show because I couldn't afford to have actors, you know, so I decided <laughs> I have at least myself, so, so I just wrote all this material, and, and I was very industrious. Um, I booked myself all over the country. Uh, just, I would just show up in Indianapolis and, uh, and just, you know, I'd find a list of all the nonprofit theaters and, you know, show up and audition in the uh, office, you know, and, and then if they liked me, they'd, they'd say, come back in six months and I'd show up again and, you know, all they needed was just me and a, a chair, you know, it was just getting the right chairs. And right. I was a cheap act, you know, to, they could book between, you know, between plays, uh, just getting, I, I would show up and the, the one, i say, all I need is, a, is an armchair, but you get there and be a spring going up here and that's you know, so, you know, one good chair. But, uh, yeah, so I learned, it was kind of like, in a way, really it was kind of like being in vaudeville in a certain sense that for, for six years, I did all these solo pieces and learned so much about uh, exposition and um, uh, c characterization, uh, how to, to establish, since I was working on a bare stage, how to establish where I was, what the time of the play was, you know, in an effortless way. And so I learned a lot, so it's kind of that my, was my education. And if writing is a lonely profession, then you were the actor, too. That must have been double lonely. It was very lonely. <laughs> oh, God, just show, you know, showing up in Santa Cruz, you know, uh, <laughs> on a rainy <laughs> Tuesday is grim, you know. Where did you come I, um, you know, because for me, the interesting thing is that the, uh, I, w I grew up in Texas, in Houston, Texas, and, uh, and, and when I was I in sixth and seventh grade, I, I um, came across a speech class and um, and a very very good little class that uh, had duet acting, 
So uh, I thought it would be a lot of fun to do, and my friends told me it would be a lot of fun to do. And so I did, and, and, and I had to compete. And, um, and so the first thing that I ever actually performed in um, was a scene from The Odd Couple. Uh, uh, this uh, by Neil Simon, and it, uh, hmm. I played Oscar, and and uh, very, very successfully. We had we actually won some awards. We went to competitions and won some awards, and um, and then from that I became an actor, and then in, and then uh, I moved on into into directing through graduate school at UCLA and uh, in in Europe, and then from there I was an assistant director and worked in fact with Jack O'Brien, who directed The Full Monty for many years, and many other directors. And now, uh, uh, and then, you, uh, you know, out of the blue, I got a call about directing a Neil Simon play. And um, it, it, it's an amazing journey that I've had, that I'm able to work with this writer whose work actually initially turned me on to what it meant to be funny, to what it, <coughs> what it meant to be uh, inventive in the theater. And, um, and, uh, and that relationship between the writer and director is a very complicated relationship that has many different, that has many different facets to it. Um, uh, with Neil, um, a lot of times, you, by saying nothing to him, you say a lot. He would call and send me a rewrite of a scene, he'd fax it um, from Los Angeles, and, and um, uh, I would read it and I'd realize it wasn't, it wasn't yet finished. And so I would call and say, hello, Neil. And he said, and he, there would be a pause, and then he'd say, okay, I'll go back to work on it. You know, um, he, would, he wouldn't, I wouldn't even say anything. If it and were only that easy. And, right. then, and then, he, then, I, then I'd call, he'd send it back the, later on, either the next day or, or the later that day, another change. And I would read it, and I would immediately call, and I'd say, hello, Neil. And he knew, it's great, isn't it? Yeah, it's great. I think it really works. Um, and I mean, and for me, you have to understand. I mean, I did, uh, I did this. I did his work as you know, my first time as a you know, what a twelve-year-old, um, <laughs> doing his play, and now I'm having this conversation with him about his work. Um, and I think writers and directors, it's a great relationship. It's a, it's a complicated one. Do you notice that so many come from acting to directing, or writing? Is there anything? And dance. I mean, dancers become choreographers and then become directors. It's, you always mm -hmm. start, not always, but a lot of the times, uh, the actor, the director, and I mean the choreographer and the director first performed mm -hmm. at some level or on some level. I'm sh mm -hmm. You must have performed. You started performing because it's the easiest way to get involved in the theater. Mm -hmm. Whether you're in eighth grade and you're performing in the high school show or, or the, uh, the, you know, the school show or whatever it is, you know, that's, the, that's how you start. That's how you get, you know, how you get How important is that when you come into either directing or choreography? Uh, it was amazingly important. Like, like uh, George is talking about, when you get to this level, what you then present on stage is a part of all the experiences mm -hmm. you've had yeah. in your life. Mm -hmm. yeah. from, from the very first one. Yeah. I mean, that's how, that's how each of us is here and how each of us is different from each other because we come from different backgrounds, we've had different training. I was very blessed in the theater because when I came to New York, the first time I was ever in New York, I was on spring break from college, went to audition for, I went with a girlfriend to go audition for a Brigadoo, the Broadway revival, what 1980, Webster College in St. Louis, Missouri. And I was on spring break, and she didn't get the job, and I got it. Agnes DeMille picked me for the show. First audition ever. I came back to New York, did the show, 
and I never stopped dancing. Now, I had been choreographing already, but what I was doing was I was dancing with Agnes DeMille, I was dancing with Michael Bennett, I was dancing with Jerome Robbins, I was dancing with George Faison, <laughs> Ron Field, uh, the list goes on. I was dancing with all of the greatest, and, I w and Bob Avian, and I was assisting Michael Bennett and Jerome Robbins. So as somebody who wants to choreograph, to be dancing for them and watching the way they're working, and then to be asked to assist them and work with them and learn how to construct a number, how to work on a number, and not just from a choreographer's point of view, but from a director's point of view, because those gentlemen didn't just choreograph. Uh, I think that's the, really the key, is that it's the relationship between the, the director or choreographer and the performer. Would you explain that? It's, 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 it, you have to know exactly what an actor goes through. You mm -hmm. have to know what their process is. You have to know how they g approach the script, and you have to help them facilitate that. I think, and, and, and if you've done it, if you've performed eight times a week, then you understand. You know, you what know what's going you on. You know a little bit more about what it takes yeah. to get through it. Yeah. But is there ever a moment? Do you think some people become, uh, some people move from acting to directing, for example, because they've perceived that they have limitations as an actor and that they want to? I mean, Certainly. I, I, yeah. I started off doing acting just on an amateur level in college, and I, f I was uh, performing in a student um, troupe that, that wrote sort of Second City st style sketches. And um, I figured out pretty quickly that I wasn't a very good actor, but I was, a, you know, I was a much better writer than I was as an actor. And if I wanted to get laughs in the sketches, I'd better write myself some good <laughs> 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 Because I wasn't, I wasn't funny enough to, to yeah. put it across the way yeah. some of the other people who had kind of a natural yeah. acting gift could. So I think, um, I mean, obviously, you, you were a successful dancer before you became a choreographer. But um, at least for me, it was a kind of, question of overcoming a limitation in one area and trying yeah. to move into But you, you were also part of a Juilliard, a specific training program for, for playwrights at Juilliard, right? right? Explain that. Well, after I moved to New York, I spent a couple years working um, in different strange jobs, and uh, I, uh, I eventually got into this Juilliard program, which was just starting out. And it was, unlike a lot of sort of graduate programs where I think you're meant to learn playwriting, somehow it was just a, it was a residency where you could be at the Juilliard School, write plays, under the supervision of the playwrights who were running the program, Chris Durang and Marcia Norman. Incredible um, people. Yeah. Fantastic yeah. teachers. Yeah. And they, so they, you got the benefit of kind of their wisdom and experience, but mostly you could write plays and have them done by these terrific Juilliard actors. And that was kind of a, I mean, learning how to write for actors is one of the hardest yeah. things, I think, for a playwright to do because um, it's, it's, it's really difficult to, to uh, be in a place where you have enough freedom to um, learn what the process that the actors are going through, what kind of questions the actors ask about the script, and incorporate it into your script without kind of worrying about about what the reaction will be. So that's one of the great things about a school environment. And in your in your play, Proof, I mean that uh, the Mary Louise Parker's performance and Ben Ben Schenken's performance. I mean that it's like a wedding between your writing and your ideas, and mm -hmm. and casting that's sublime, I think. I mean, just the way they, they handle your, your text is amazing. Well, all four of them, I yeah. think, are just it, amazing. It's true, it's yeah. an amazing And group. when you were writing it, did you have them in mind in the beginning? Like you said, you had uh, Linda yeah, Lavin yeah, yeah. always in mind. Yeah. No, I didn't, have, I didn't have anyone in mind, really. I mean, I, I, I was sort of worried because I didn't know who could play this lead role of this kind yeah. of big, complicated part for a young actor. I didn't know... Um, who could take it on. The theater actually proposed Mary Louise, and I thought that was a great idea. And we had a reading at Manhattan Theater Club, a cold reading. She came in. We hadn't, I'd never met her. 
we had we didn't talk at all. There was no director there. She came in. I guess she had read the script through once, um, and just sitting there with her at a table, she was the part in a way that was mm. really stunning to me. I mean, I, I she went for it um, and was brave enough to be as crazy as the character needed to be and as hard as the character needed to be. And, it, and I thought to make that choice in just a reading setting with people sitting around casually with their you know, coffee cups in their hands mm. was really pretty, pretty amazing. I mean, so that here's courage. another question then after that reading, did you begin to write it for her? And did you, didn't the, did the character change a lot after that? Did you begin to shape it more for her? The script didn't really change substantially after we went into production, but one thing that I did, I think, gain from having her in the role was uh, the character originally had more kind of jokes or more, more one-liners or wisecracks in, yeah. in earlier drafts. And Mary Louise, I think, let me know that she would be willing to lose some of those in exchange for um, a, you know, deeper intensity in the part. And I was, just, I was kind of amazed by that. I mean, um, very few actors are willing to give up laughs in a show. <laughs> and and uh, she, you know, sh there were moments where we agreed, you know, this, maybe this is becoming a little too Catskills, or maybe we can, we can lose the laugh here in exchange for something else. And she embraced that kind of choice in a way that I think is pretty unusual. Mm -hmm. And the director was observing this, supporting it, encouraging? Yeah, facilitating, I would say. I mean, Dan Sullivan, the director, was, is extremely good at kind of hanging back and, and letting things happen and making choices, pulling out what's best and um, pinpointing good ideas. And, and uh, I was interested that John said that he, he had moments with Neil Simon where he didn't say anything because that is really valuable. I mean, I w I, uh, at one point when Proof was in rehearsal, I went away for about a week and a half because they were blocking it. And, there's not a lot that the playwright can really contribute at that point. And also, it's just really boring to watch <laughs> it. <right? laughs> you think um, getting miserable. Right. So I kind of stayed away, and I was like nervously like wondering, how this is the, my first big show, what's going on, you know? <laughs> and I finally came back into rehearsal after a week and a half, and I was really anxious to kind of sit down with Dan and say, you know, how did, how did everything go? What's going on? And is it, how is it? And he looked at me and he said, it's good. <laughs> and that was it. I mean, that yeah. was, and uh, and I knew it was good. And he was he was telling me he was being very straightforward. And if there had been anything that I needed to worry about, then he would have told me. So yeah, it's great. Yeah, we we had an interesting rehearsal process. It was you know we knew it was uh, comedy, but and we had these very um, skilled comic performers, uh, mm -hmm. Tony Roberts and Linda Lavin and Michelle Lee and uh, uh, and Lynn Meadow, our director, kind of did an interesting thing that uh, because there's actually a uh, rather rich emotional life to the play, she actually rehearsed them almost as if they were doing Hedda Gabler, and we kind of didn't, we sort of didn't, we knew they'd be funny. We knew, you know, right. and, and we'd heard at the readings that, that we'd done how, that it was going to be a funny play, and we got a big reaction from the little audiences that would just listen to it. And, uh, and it was fascinating, particularly watching Linda uh, kind of build this foundation of a of, of very rich emotion underneath the play. And uh, of course, you know, by the third week, I was beginning to wonder, when is she going to be funny? Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> but she, you know, but you just had it kind of like, you know, it was, it was, it was fascinating where every, every um, I'd never seen anybody quite work this way, where all the, um, the blocking um, that, that they did was strictly out of behavioral things. Linda won't no pratfalls. She, or she just won't cr just, you know, cross the stage. She has to cross the stage because she's picking up a glass to refill it. You know, and, uh, mm. and so the play really had this very strong emotional foundation. And then 
that's just a certain point. All of a sudden, uh, like a, you know, I don't know, a, a little animal that suddenly changes colors in the spring or something, you know, all of a sudden the laugh started coming and, and it was hysterically yeah. funny and it was a rather magical in, process. In uh, San Diego, the night before the first preview of the Full Monty, we had been rehearsing the show for four and a half weeks in a room with no one to laugh or respond mm -hmm. to anything. And, you know, you're working on something that Terrence's book is hilarious. I've never heard people laugh so loud and enjoy themselves so much in the theater. And David Yazbek's lyrics equally are hilarious. So you have no idea what the audience is going to do. It's first preview, and we're at dinner, and Jack O'Brien turns to me, and I had choreographed this little strip routine. The show starts out, you're in the club, it's a Chippendales kind of setting, the girls are there, they're, ooh, girls' night out, and a stripper walks onto the stage and starts doing his job. And um, Jack says before dinner, we may have to cut the strip. We may, we may have to cut the strip. It's, I don't know, it's, maybe it's too long, I'm not sure. And I said, well, Jack, you know, I am all for telling the story. Jerome Robbins always taught me whatever, whatever tells the story is the way to go cut your dance number, whatever. So they get to the first preview <laughs> and the audience is there and we had 60 stenos in the first four <laughs> rows of the theater. And the actor, uh, Dennis Jones, comes out, Annie Golden introduces him and he walks out and he walks down the stage and he goes like this and he rips his pants off and the house goes up in screams and hollers like I've never heard. <laughs> People screaming for this guy at the top of the show, stripping. And Jack said, well, it worked. <laughs> you, know, you never know. You don't know how they're going to react. It's, yeah. you, know, you think, you hope, you pray, but you really don't know until they get in front of you. I just wanted to refer back to uh, uh, the story about the allergist wife and Linda Lavin, because I have something a little different, but I think similar in a way. Um, Henry Winkler, who's in the play The Dinner Party, with this extraordinary cast, John Ritter and this great group, and Henry, because we, we didn't know what the play was, because Neil had written a kind of extraordinary farcical play, but also a play that deals with very serious issues about divorce and, and how human beings relate to each other in, in the divorce situation. Um, and um, so when we first approached it, we, and Henry in particular, approached it with a zest and a vigor and a kind of farcical take on the part. Um, and the, during the course of the run in Los Angeles, and then we had this extraordinary chance to do it again in D.C., he, um, he began to, we began to slowly pull things away and make, in, in a very interesting way, do the opposite, building a character from sort of the outside in. Um, and I can remember specifically in Washington, D.C., because we had pulled his performance way back. And what I mean by that is just trusting the text, trusting his own inner instincts, uh, and not having to put anything funny on it. And I remember in, literally in the dressing room, before the pre press came to see it in Washington, D.C., because um, uh, he, he had developed this walk, which was quite funny, but unnecessary. Um, the sort of quite comical hunched walk. And I remember him in the dressing room right before he went on. I said, okay, Henry, walk for me, walk for me. And he'd start walking. He said, how's this? I said, it's too much. Just relax. Relax your shoulders. Relax your back. Okay, that's it. That's it. Are you sure? That's it. Okay. And then he literally just from the dressing room walked out, stood in place, and then went on. And it's that kind of sort of pulling back and restraining of the performance that helped, enabled us to find the play. 
um, which was very different, um, I think, and, and yet, you know, extraordinary. For someone who hadn't been on the stage since 1973, <laughs> Henry, you know, did an extraordinary thing. You said flexible, it's wonderful. Yeah, yeah. David, I wanted to ask you, we have a, a lot of talk about shows that are up and running and, and have been done. You're in the vulner vulnerable position of being in pre-production for Tom yes. Sawyer. What's, how's that going? Well, it, it's wonderful, but it's, it's a little intimidating because <laughs> they're talking about experiences that they've had or are having, and I am only anticipating it, and so it's a little difficult, but I, I, I feel very, very good about it. It's, um, I think it's a wonderful piece. It's a... Um, it's just, I think it's extraordinary. Is it a fairly straightforward telling of it, or is, it a, is, it a, is there an angle? It is. Uh, well, it's hard to... Uh, I guess the only angle is to try and tell it well. <laughs> you know? It goes back to your true <laughs> romance. Yeah, tell, tell yeah, the story yeah try and well. tell it well. It's, um, I think the book is wonderful. Ken Ludwig has written a wonderful book. Um, the music is extraordinary. It's by a gentleman who, uh, by the name of Don Schlitz, who is very well known for uh, all of the... Um, the uh, award-winning songs he's written, but uh, among them, the best known being The Gambler that Kenny Rogers sang. And uh, the music is so accessible and it's just so wonderful and uh, it provides an opportunity, oh, pardon me, it provides, <laughs> <laughs> it provides an opportunity for me as a choreographer to have a wonderful launching pad to begin. So mm. my head is full of visions of loveliness, but, <laughs> you know. Well, you, uh, you d to talk about telling a story, you did a version of Martin Guerre, did you not? A story yes. that has had lots of trouble trying to find the way to tell it on stage, I think it's fair to say. Yes, uh, I did it at the Chicago Goodman Theater. Uh, David Petrarca directed it, and... Uh, um, it was a musical. And it was a musical. It. Yes, I, I did choreograph it. It, it wasn't, uh, uh, that was the only musical where I, I only had a very small part in it. In terms of a, a, an actual dance, there was only one dance, mm -hmm. and it was only about a minute and a half long, and it was sort of a dance of Martin's uh, frustration at having to, having to wed someone he wasn't exactly excited about wedding, so... Um, so you put a title in your bio and I get to ask a question, it's a one and a half minute. <laughs> yeah, it's one and a half minutes, but it, it, you know, I, I feel very good about it, David Petrarca. I learned a wonderful thing from David Petrarca. Uh, uh, I learned that my vision isn't necessarily always the one that's going to work. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, there was a wonderful uh, stepping stone, stressful. Uh, very stressful. You don't know quite when you're beginning how something's going to turn out. And I came into the production. I was so excited because <laughs> I thought I'm going to be, you know, yeah, <laughs> you know, I'm going to be jazz and dancing and all of this stuff. And he goes, uh, I saw. It. He he said, well, let me see what you got. And I showed him the dance. It was finished, and I was so proud of it. And my assistants and I were sitting there. And uh, we should. <laughs> I get up and do it for oh, him. Oh, it's so <laughs> odd because I've worked with David Petrarca as well. <laughs> <laughs> I did um, Dinah Was with him. Oh, uh, that's so great. And, uh, and I, I had, uh, I did a minute and a half. <laughs> I, did, I did the job because it, it was so easy, so it was just like, fine. So a lot of the time, it is just servicing. So he, you know, he said, he said yes, go home. Well, I want the end of the story of Martin King. Oh, well, no, it's, it's interesting that there was only a minute and a half. A minute and a half. That's what I'm saying. It's always a minute and a half. <laughs> I, I got a minute and a half. Right, and I got a minute and a half for you. So I went there. It was about Dinah, and she was, and it was about uh, the relationship that she had over one weekend with this one guy. It's a whole sexual thing. So we took a song, You Got What It Takes, and we had them go to bed you know, from the strip to the bed to the sheet to the, to the next day to his leaving. So it, it telescoped that entire mm -hmm. relationship. So sometimes that, that kind of 
economy really works, then, you know. Well, I want to get the end of the story. Oh, uh, well, well, uh, but we, the vision. Dave, of doing a real flat out dance in a hall at once. Well, you think you, you know, and, and it was, you know, I had just uh, become a, a choreographer in New York. I've been choreographing for a, a, a very long time, but in New York, you know, you don't really start until you do it in New York. Mm. Um, and it was my second show. Um, I had just done a workshop um, with Pete Gurney and, and John Tillinger of a Cole Porter musical, and I had had like 13 dance numbers, and you know, it was, only a, it was only sort of a workshop, and it never really sort of went anywhere, but I came off of that with this sense of, whoo, I'm gonna go and I'm gonna do another big musical, and I'm gonna be great, and, and I came from a very, uh, a lot of the people Jerry's worked with, as well as Jerry and George, are some of my uh, mentors, <laughs> well, they don't know it, but <laughs> <laughs> now they do. Uh, and so I kind of come from that sensibility of, you know, straight on and for the audience and make sure big jazz hands and all of that stuff. And I, I, and I, I love all of that <laughs> stuff. So when I came to Martin Gare, um, I expected that that's what I was going to do, is present a really serious sort of jazz hand version of <laughs> <laughs> what I was doing. <laughs> so, <laughs> middle ages, so, of course. Jazz <laughs> it's time that David says, why don't you show me what you've got? And um, I show it to him, and I'm leaping and jumping and all of this wonderful stuff that Martin's frustrated about. And uh, he goes, can you do it again? And I said, sure. And he goes, okay, now. I said, what? this and here's your tap dance and he goes yeah that that's what it is i said well what about the rest he said oh no 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 <laughs> that's what it is because david has danced before but here's a really great thing for a choreographer is you know when you start out as a choreographer and you get a show you go okay what do i got to do okay I, I gotta choreograph these four numbers and you come in for the first day and you do your four numbers and you think i'm done I, mm -hmm. and what i one of the great things that i learned with full monty was i took the six guys and i let them tell me how to choreograph mm -hmm. i used their acting talents to choreograph their bad stripping mm. because Absolutely. i can't choreograph bad stripping i have to choreograph it on somebody who's going to do it Poorly, right. and I always wanted them to look pedestrian. So for me to go in with, you know, I mean, I went in with some stuff. The basketball number was done, but the moments when they had to be guys, like mm. practicing their belt and failing, I had to use their acting ability, just like you're using, you're doing a scene, and and that's part of what you learn as a choreographer right. as you work. And fortunately, uh, I I just recently saw the full Monty, and, and I've known Jerry for a while, and. Like George, uh, Jerry almost gave me my first job <laughs> once upon a time as well. Um, but I, after seeing the full Monty, he solidified an idea I had about the adventures of Tom Sawyer, which was, uh, and I was very terrified of it in the beginning, but related to the David Petrarca Good, uh, Goodman Theater experience, I learned to trust my collaborators that um, they might have uh, an idea that actually was, you know, more appropriate than mine. Um, but when we were uh, discussing Tom Sawyer, I wanted to make sure that I had dancers. I wanted to make sure that I was being, you know, doing Michael Kidd jumps and all this stuff. And then I thought about, well, uh, you know, the warmth of this piece, the, the style of it is, is uh, one of the, the one of the concepts uh, is, uh, I hate that word, concepts, but one of the ideas is that it, we want it to be expansive, not so country-western, because he's not a country-western writer. He's a songwriter, and he's a wonderful songwriter. And we wanted it to have a very grand sort of scope. Um, 
And so I immediately thought, Michael Kidd, Seven Brides for Seven Brothers, Tony Award, you know, of course, who doesn't want to make up a Tony Award or something like that. But <laughs> Jazz hands. Of course, jazz hands, exactly. But, you know, in the auditions, I found that all of the dancers who were able to jump and leap weren't necessarily, the children, weren't necessarily able to um, be real and be actors and, and then sing. And so after seeing the full Monty, so we, we, so reluctantly, I conceded to hire not dancers and go, okay, if Jerry can do it with the full Monty, <laughs> yeah, I, can. I can do it with Tom Sorry, and I'm still, you know, just doing this. But so I, I think that I it's important to, to be appropriate to the piece. Yeah. Uh, you have to hire an actor. It's always more fun to watch an actor dance than it is to watch a dancer try to act. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> also, I mean, uh, th there's, there's an interesting thing about choreography which, which fascinates me being nowhere near th that part of the world, but um, in th saying the jazz hands and stuff like that, obviously we've talked about the, that part of choreography is telling the story. Part of it yes. is being a director yes. for a section, the dance section of, of a musical. When do steps come into that? Last for me. For me, last. In telling the story? Yes. When you're choreographing and you have the story, so when... In, in, the, in the Michael Jordan's ball number in, in uh, Full Monty, I never thought of a step. Mm -hmm. I heard the song, and I went into the room one day, and in about, in about three minutes, I choreographed the first half of the number. Mm -hmm. It came out of me. Because it was the right number for me to do, it was the right song. I grew up playing basketball. I played basketball my whole life. I knew what I wanted to do. I knew that through the movements of basketball, I wanted the audience to think for the first time these guys are going to be able to strip. Mm. And that was what I, mm -hmm. and it just kind of, the first half of it just like went And then the last half was just shaping it. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think trusting the words. Yeah. But uh, if the if words you set you up. And I think if you believe them enough, if you, um, put yourself in that position uh, that the, uh, oftentimes the words will help you choreograph that or, and uh, if you just follow through as an actor would in expanding exactly. the idea you are then Because there. sometimes you don't have words because many times the dance happens without right. anything but music mm -hmm. and so what you're doing is basically imagining the through line of the actors. Right. So you have to create your own idea of what would happen from the moment you begin to work with them and, and take their storyline through to the point where you hand it but back off to the director. Do you think s sometimes that you, you hear a song and you think leaps? Oh, sure, I mean, sure. I mean, if you're here, oh, yeah, absolutely. You, I mean, it's not the same sort of bag of tricks. They're, they're no, no. I, personally, for me, I can never choreograph the same number twice because no two pieces of music are identical. And, and uh, I, I never, ever, ever see a piece the same way. And sometimes it takes me, like Jerry said, no time at all, and sometimes it's, I'm still working on it, you know, right up to opening, and I'm terrified, yeah. you know. Absolutely, there's sometimes yeah. when, because when that it's, really happens. Mm -hmm. It's just the, the, the nature. The, the, the enormity of the moment that you're trying mm -hmm. to, to capture, mm -hmm. you know, will take you three or four stages yeah. to actually get to that point. And sometimes it's things that you, you don't have any control over, sure. like costumes sometimes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know, a costumer's idea of what uh, um, the piece should be is counter to what you're trying to convey. And, you know, you, you know sometimes you're you taking scissors to costume. <laughs> <laughs> and it's like, but 
the final thing is the audience. Right. When the audience is screaming, right. everybody backs off. Yeah. <laughs> right. it's, it's, it's the same thing in a straight play at times too, though, where where you know you um, go through this process and you you know uh, you rewrite a whole scene and and then you re try it out in front of the audience and you just it's just awful and you really wrecked it up. And then, but then when you go back and you go back to the old scene, you might have just found one line. From the from the rotten scene, yeah. that it was, so it was worth the process. Absolutely, yeah, a painful one, but it was worth yes, it. Yes, yeah. very painful. <laughs> yeah. for all the people involved. I mean, uh, and sometimes you can turn a whole piece around. Mm -hmm. You know, you, they may think, oh, you know, because if you're going to do a piece like the Wiz, it's a, we're going to create a classic, right? You know, that <laughs> you is a bumpy road. <laughs> right, absolutely. And then, you know, like, you have to take away half of the stuff. I mean, they created trains and like, more material than you could ever really work with and, and so forth. And then good. all of a sudden, you, you, by flipping it over your arm and, and mm -hmm. adding a pole or something like that, you create even a more classic mm -hmm. image of something. So it's like, it oftentimes works. I just want to add briefly that... Um, talking about this because um, we had talked about the, pro the you know how plays come to being and the journeys they made and since we had a chance to work on the dinner party for a third time when we brought it here to New York we went back into the rehearsal hall uh, and there were some rewrites and some changes that we did and um, Neil after after two weeks of work Neil came from Los Angeles to see run through which did, frankly did not go that well um, and um, we had, I and the actors had sort of developed some new staging and some things that we wanted to, we thought we were improving on. And he very, you know, candidly and, and, and in a way a remarkable thing, and something, I think this happens in any craft, but he, he told us, he related a story of when he was a boy and he used to work, he used to love uh, balsa wood airplanes and fly them. Um, and he said um, sometimes he would sand them to make them fly better and he, sometimes he would keep sanding and keep sanding and then they wouldn't fly at all. Um, and, and, and that is also another thing about the th process and, and sort of what you're mm -hmm. saying is that sometimes the work can get, like you say, you have to do this, write this whole new scene and throw things out. It's, it's making that balsa wood plane fly. Um, and no. sometimes the rough edges help it. <laughs> you know, I'm to take that sandpaper and putting it aside. Yeah. What's the picking order? Choreographer, director, playwright, who, who oversees the other? Depends on who's the What's oldest. What's the difference between the <laughs> choreographer <laughs> and whose vision and, it is and, and who's, guiding the, who's guiding that particular stage of the piece? Every, every production's different. I mean, you know, I think uh, I can only speak mostly for musicals because that's what I've m had my experience on. But, uh, it's very collaborative. Mm -hmm. It's very collaborative. I, I mean, don't forget, there's another category. Can you hold it there for a sec? I think it's time for us to take a break. Yes. Hold a thought. We'll come back. Take a break. <laughs> Ten right, minutes? That's so it. That's what I was going to say. We leave our, do we leave our... <laughs> this is CUNY TV. The City University of New York. Welcome back to the American Theatre Wing seminar on working in the theatre. Before returning to our panelists, I would like to emphasize to you that these seminars and the Tony Awards for Excellence in the Theatre are only a part of the activities of the American Theatre Wing. You may be best known for these activities, but the Wing is so much more. 
It's a not-for-profit charity that serves both theater and the community with its year-round programs. The wing works to develop new audiences for the theater and bring theater to those who would otherwise not be exposed to its magic. Our meaningful programs for students include Introduction to Broadway, which in its eight-year history has enabled more than 80,000 New York City high school students to attend a Broadway show, many for the first time. The Wing also introduces young people to theater and to other worlds by bringing professionals into schools for workshops as a part of our theater and school program. Additionally, the Wing's hospital program, dating back to World War II when we created legendary stage door canteens, continues to entertain patients in hospitals, nursing homes, aid centers, child care and hospice facilities in the New York area. With volunteers of talent from Broadway, Off-Broadway, and the cabaret world, The Wing continues to bring live entertainment to those who are not able to attend theater. And our grants and scholarship program provides essential support where it is so needed. We take pride in the work we do and remain so grateful to our members and everyone who makes the work of the American Theater Wing possible. Our work strengthens the ties between theater and the community. We are proud to be a part of this great effort. And so now, I would like to return to our seminar, and I think we're going to start with questions from the audience. Would, would you like to start now? Hi, uh, my name is Adrian Martinez, and my question's for the panel. Uh, what would you say are the most impressive things an actor can do at uh, auditions? <laughs> be good. <laughs> um, I think they can come in the same outfit that they wore the very first time <laughs> because that makes it easy to remember them. That'll uh, kind of mark the, the performance and kind of, you know, put it with the clothes and the face. Uh, a lot of people, some people I've known, have changed outfits, changed their personality. <laughs> so that instead of mm -hmm. that red blouse making you feel a certain way, you wear a green one and then you come in feeling another way wear the same clothes. <laughs> I think another thing that an actor can do when they audition is be aware of the room they're walking into. Uh, you have to come in, you have a very short amount of time to make a great impression. You have to come in and be sensitive to what's going on in the room. Actors should think of the time they're auditioning. Uh, if it's 10 in the morning, you know, we're ready to go. If it's 6 o'clock, we've been here all day long, and you should come in and get to the point. Uh, do a good audition, be honest, be open, don't try to outdo, you know, and also be prepared for your audition. Know what you're coming into audition for. Make sure you have a picture and resume stapled together and know what, if you're auditioning for, uh, you know, uh, I don't know, Les Mis, you're going to sing something like in that vein, you're not going to sing, you know, uh, Red Hot and Coal. It, know the show you're auditioning for. It's certainly on a musical level. I just saw, uh, I, I've been, I'm auditioning a play right now, and um, I, I just was in the room with a, with a pretty extraordinary uh, audition, and, and this, is a, this is a play by Herb Gardner called A Thousand Clowns, mm -hmm. and um, so it always depends on what the piece is, and um, I what I mean by extraordinary is here was an actress who connected to the text who, who gave the text uh, 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 something that surprised us. And, um, 
and didn't mean to surprise us. It just genuine, genuinely surprised and brought something into the room that, as a director, you say, oh my God, th that, that is something that I can work with. That is fresh. There are some new thoughts about the play. There are some new thoughts about the character that I had never imagined. So you want somebody, I think, that you feel like um, can bring to the table uh, a lot. Um, uh, yeah. A collaborator. Yeah. <laughs> the other thing is, uh, people, we want you to be good. Mm -hmm. We want you to come in and wow us. Yeah, yeah. You know, we don't want you to come in and fall flat on your face. We want you to wow us. I, <laughs> I, I, I like a friendly conversation in it, mm -hmm. and and, uh, and you know, to, to try to make it easy for the actor. Yeah. I, I try to you know be supportive and and really listen and help. Would you like to ask the next question? Hi, my name is Breland Brooks. And I'm curious, this is for the whole panel, when there is a difference between the author and the director, what's the best way to resolve that? <laughs> Good <laughs> bite. <laughs> well, um, yeah, I've been so lucky, you know. I've, I, each director I've worked with uh, has been, we've been such a um, close um, collaboration that there's never, I've never really had a conflict. We're just we're at loggerheads. Um, uh, in fact, my, my problem is I'm too quick to, to to sort of, you know, well, that's a fascinating idea, and, and give up my own. So, um, uh, I, I, gosh, I'm. David, but I, I think that's the that. best way to be, to be open to change. I yeah, think yeah. an idea can live and die within a second or so, you know, and you're on to the next idea. Mm -hmm. But uh, you find so many people, yeah, I'm hoping you know, somebody, entrenched yeah. in, in, in ideas that don't work, and you spend weeks you know, sitting there waiting, mm -hmm. nursing that bad idea, mm -hmm. when it takes only a few minutes just to try or just to be open to another mm -hmm. thought. Mm -hmm. Communication. Either. It is. Yeah. It is really. I think that yeah. initial conversation is really important. I mean, I, I've been really lucky too. I haven't had any, I've never had any major conflicts with the director, but I think it's because when, when you're first starting out, you make sure that you both have essentially the same idea of what of what you want for the play that um, he doesn't think he's directing a farce when you've written you know something that's more serious so that, that those kind of like basic questions of tone what kind of production should this be should it be a essentially realistic production or something more abstract if you're on the same page with those things I think then any disagreements you have further down the line are going to be relatively <coughs> minor and, and things that you can that you can work through I think th I think disagreements are also very useful because they end up uh, defining what it is you're trying to exactly. do. Exactly. Mm -hmm. So you can have a disagreement about casting, say in the audition process, and from that disagreement on a particular actor, you learn what the play <coughs> can be. Um, so the dialogue, in, in you know, the disagreement is part of the dialogue ultimately. Well, I think if you if if two parties are not in agreement, then you haven't quite reached what it sh is supposed to be or what you're trying to achieve, because I think the objective is to have everybody who is collaborating agree on yes, what the absolutely. piece is. And that usually is, uh, the ship is usually driven by the director, mm -hmm. certainly on the full Monty, with his unbelievable brilliance and his ability to really be the arbiter. Uh, Jack O'Brien was mm -hmm. magnificent yes, at absolutely. taking Terence and David and myself in allowing us at all times to say whatever was on our mind mm -hmm. and be very much involved in the process of making the project the best that it could possibly be. Mm -hmm. okay, uh, my name is John Francis Fox. My question is for Charles Bush. 
Since Al just disquieted departure from your previous work, do you intend to return to your old style or continue in a more conventional form? That's a very good question. Everybody, including my own sister, keeps asking me that. And the thing is that, uh, yeah, um, I, I, my dream really would be to, to have a career um, doing everything. I, um, Allerge's wife is a more naturalistic kind of play for me, and, um, and I, where I'm just the writer. So t to kind of grow as a writer, I had to kind of write a play that I wasn't in, um, because I have certain, as a performer, I have a very specific thing that I do. Um, but I'd love to, to write myself just a fabulous new um, drag role, and I have <laughs> blueprints for half a dozen. <laughs> so I haven't uh, I I packed away my heel so quick. You know? <laughs> you know? My name is Melanie Seinfeld. The question is for all of you. Audience reactions can change from performance to performance, and I was wondering if you let their reaction influence you during previews to make any changes. Oh, yes. Yes, particularly in a, in a comedy. You know, um, it was fascinating. Not laughing. Well, it was fascinating that we, you know, I did a certain amount of rewriting for, between um, the, our MTC run and, and the Broadway production, and um, I kind of, uh, there was a scene where he kind of, I sort of fleshed it out a bit more. And, there, and, and so surprising that this one joke, not it was a joke, just this one little section that, that got a huge laugh, just, it just died. And, and, and nothing's more scarier than a laugh that dies in a Broadway house. That's just <laughs> hard. You hear the wind going through. <laughs> and, and, um, and so it's delicious. So we cut it. It was, a, you know, it was one of the best laughs uh, at MTC, but somehow. Somehow, what went, the new stuff that went before it must have killed it. And we tried it every which way, too. And Lynn um, Meadow, the director, she had the actors far apart. She had them closer together. She had them this way, this way. And, and just some, some strange alchemy um, blew it. Yeah. With dance, it's a, it's a little bit different, I think. It, it's, you use the audience to gauge whether you're hitting it, I think. For me, I, I don't know. I, I may <laughs> not necessarily know if a number is is working until the end of the piece, which is when you get the response from the audience. It's kind of like a, a punchline. At the end of the, the, the dance number, if they're going like that, well, then you're not finished. With the full Monty, I used Jack O'Brien's dog. <laughs> Punky would come to rehearsals, and if she barked at the end of the number, I knew I had done a good job. That's honest-to-God truth. It's also, also the, just wanted to add one quick thing about it. Um, you know, the plays during previews, they tend to breathe. And th what I mean by that is that the actors' performances tend to breathe. And so uh, sometimes one night you may not get the responses that mm -hmm. you want. That doesn't mean that they have to laugh. That also means that they, the audience may be moved or whatever. And rather than um, having to approach the text or, the text or, or the staging, y it may just be a conversation backstage about the show and why the some essences were lost or whatever and so it's a it's a very fine thing previews are so helpful in that way in in the full monty also it was very very important that during the preview period we didn't let the audience tell us how to play the show and jack was very good with the actors about keeping it real uh, and not getting too slick remember you're steel workers you're unemployed and you live in buffalo you don't know how to dance you don't know how to sing this is this and that he was so clear about not letting the audience's reaction or laughs 
get the actors to become more mm -hmm. sticky. And I thought that was a brilliant, uh, like you're talking about, you have, to be, you have to be secure in what you're playing and not let it take you either way. Uh. But my name is Dwayne Cyrus, and my question is for all the panelists. Um, you spoke, you've just been speaking about whether the work is right once it's presented to the audience, but my question is, how and when do you know it's right before you even present it? I don't know. I think that with, um, when you agree to do a play or you d agree to do a musical, there should be something about it, some truth about the piece that is very close to you. Something that will, through all those turbulent times, through all the, the conversations, uh, compromises, and all the things that you have to do, that will guide you through mm -hmm. that. Above everything, the truth, in a sense, will set you free. But you have to really be out for that truth. Mm -hmm. You know, even if it's, if it means, you know, curtailing some of the things that you are doing or compromising some, your vision in, in lieu of somebody else's. So it's like, um, you have to believe in it beyond everything. Mm -hmm. And because when, <laughs> in your most dire moment, when you think failure may be around the corner, you, 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 that's one thing you're going to have to rely on your faith and your belief in, it, in the piece to I, start with. As a writer, I think there's kind of an inner clock that you have when you know that you've kind of done as good as you can at, to this point before you go into production. And you've done so much rewriting that that's just sort of it. But then, and then once you start rehearsal, then all of a sudden you get your you know, sizzle back and you uh, start rewriting again. But there's this kind of inner clock, and sometimes it's uh, come sooner than others. I mean, there's certain pieces I've written that I, I don't know, just uh, tinkered with it a little bit, and I thought it was perf perfectly good shape. And, <laughs> and other things I've just tortured to death forever. <laughs> and you're still waiting. So, <laughs> still, yeah. And it's all just a hunch, you know, with comedy. It's just your hunch that you, you right. know, it's not even necessarily a line that you think is particularly funny, and you've kind of worked it out, you know, just methodically, <laughs> all, you, know, the, it, you know, it's got all the right elements that sh should get them laughing, and it's just a hunch, and it's so thrilling every time, the very first time you hear a play read, al read aloud, just at the very first reading, and, and you hear the, the, oh yeah, that one, you know, they got that one, <laughs> that laugh, and ooh, they didn't get that one, That's the one that was a bad one, but uh, it's, it's, it's really is thrilling, even in a tiny room. But that but first reading is really, that's the most suspenseful moment in the entire process for me, more than, more than going in before an audience for the first time, because essentially I never really know until you hear the first reading. Yeah. If the, mm -hmm. Is this play basically interesting to people or is it basically not interesting mm -hmm. to people? I mean, I know it was interesting enough for me to finish it, um, but I don't know if people, whatever the central kind of line of the play is or what you're waiting, what, what you're telling the audience is worth sitting around waiting to find out. Um, you, you don't know if they're going to grab onto that. So um, it's always <coughs> this kind of, at least for me, it's kind of a leap of faith that you just, you've got something you figure, it's kept me occupied for six months. We'll, we'll find out what other people think of it. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, too, as a director, <coughs> scripts come across, come to you, and, and it's that initial relationship that you have with the, with the text. Um, when Neil Simon sent me the dinner party, and I read it, and I recognized that, it, that there was a lot of wonderful old Neil Simon style to it. And then there was this new piece, new, new thinking on his writing, and especially a play about um, 
emotional reconciliation between divorced couples. Um, and I, 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 fin I remember reading it very quickly and finishing it and thinking, wow, this is going to be interesting. This is, this is a play to work on. This is a play to do. Um, and I think that's what happens to directors when they get pieces. I think uh, some scripts you may have a different f reaction mm -hmm. toward. Um, but it is that first reading on a private level, and then the next would be the, the cast. Certainly. And feeling a passion for it, mm -hmm. what you're going to say. It's mm -hmm. like that thing that we were talking about earlier, that you kind of have this history, you have this bag of, bag of history that you take to each text you read. And you're always thinking, oh, I want to find something different for myself, or I want to find something new for myself, or I want to find something that take, that that's, that that can stretch my the own my own artistic ability. Right. Um, it speaks about where you are personally, I think. At yeah. least for me. Yeah, and I think and I think that's what happens when you when you when you first read a play, um, so and hopefully that's the reaction that your audience will have. You know, ultimately, it's that that initial reaction you had when you thought. Oh, let's do let's do the musical version of the of the movie, the full mm -hmm. Monty. Wow, boom! And that oh, that's a that I can understand how that would work, or or a new play. And I know for myself that I I, I must enjoy it myself. Mm. Uh, uh, I mean, the initial for me, it's not words, of course. I mean, uh, it's the music. And mm. when I listen to the music, if the music doesn't move me, I can't move it. You know, mm -hmm. it's yeah. just that simple. And uh, if it does move me, then I just have to remember how it moves me. And you can't forget it, really, if you continue to listen. And you just simply follow it. And you let it guide you. I, I, always, I always say that I don't choreograph music. Music choreographs me. Mm -hmm. And I really believe that that's the way I know that I'm on the right track, by allowing myself to be guided. And then you have that through line, which you don't have to be really responsible for if you listen. Mm -hmm. Okay, I want to ask one question and go around and have everybody answer it. Because you're, you're all people who have made the theater your profession. And uh, so the, 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 the question is, what was the first moment and what was the first move that you made when you decided that was going to be your profession? For me, um, I, I didn't know I wanted to be a writer. In, in college, I wrote a play. And kind of a, on a whim, I submitted it to this fellowship program that Universal Studios used to run. So I went out to Universal after I finished school and I wrote the two screenplays. And I still didn't really think, I didn't, I had no idea what I was doing. I, um, I didn't, I wasn't, you know, I sort of stumbled into what I felt like. And the fellowship ended and I was sort of sitting there in LA with these two screenplays that no one wanted to make into movies and I just really didn't know what to do. And I was, I thought, I had a pretty clear feeling that if I was gonna go broke, I would rather go broke trying to be a playwright in New York than trying to be a screenwriter or something else in L.A. Mm -hmm. And uh, that, was, that was the moment of clarity kind of thing. Um, I mean, I've had plenty of doubts since then, but that was the <laughs> thing that kind of sent me uh, into the, in, in the direction of New York thinking, I'm going to spend a, you know, a couple of years, a decade, whatever, trying to do this. I guess um, my experience would have been you know, m making the decision to leave an organization, you know, that had sheltered me, I had had time to grow and so forth. So when I decided to leave the Ailey Company and kind of strike out on my own, I, tr I kind of asked myself, what was I going to dance about? You know, because Al Alvin had, in a sense, covered the black experience, um, you know, very extensively. But then, you know, I, I, I didn't realize until that point that I had a life too. 
you know, and that's what I was deciding at that particular time. So we had had the experience of going to Europe the first time, seeing Africa the next time, and all of those ideas exploded into telling me or showing me a way, another way of making dances that would reveal another side of me, completely separate from his vision and so forth. And then, and then deciding whether that was good enough to survive on. So I, I'm, I made a pact with myself that it, I, I um, didn't make it, or if I didn't make enough money to do my next concert, because I, I did the costumes, I rented the hall, I um, hired the dancers, and, and so forth. So if I didn't, I, I, I equated it with the, the money aspect and whether I would be able to continue to tell my story or continue to be independent, you know, of all of the outside forces that, mm -hmm. that are around. So that's how I kind of decided that I would go on. And it, it wasn't a huge profit or anything, but it just gave me enough to allow me to at least think about what were the other dances that I wanted to do and what was, were the other subjects that yeah. I would like to attack in my quest to have people understand who I was and who, you know, get a better insight into my experience. Right, David. Uh, I'm just, can you just clarify the yeah. question for me? <laughs> that you are, the moment when you decided this was going to be your profession, and what did you do? How did you go about uh, I think it was probably in high school. Um, I, I had never even heard of a musical. I, did, I was in, the, in my freshman year, and uh, they were auditioning for Guys and Dolls, which I had, it was all, you know, no hieroglyphics idea. to me. I had no idea what any of it was. And uh, I just remember thinking, oh, that sounds interesting. And I sort of ran to the audition, and it was over, and there was a woman there, and uh, the choreographer, her name is Jean Mueller. Hi, Jean. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, um, I just remember asking her uh, if she needed any boys. <laughs> <laughs> which little did I know back then was like a commodity, especially in Northeast yeah. Los Angeles, you know. Um, and she just said, sure, and she just sort of put me on the stage. And I remember that I, as soon as I got on the stage, I looked out at all these empty seats in our auditorium at Lincoln High School, and I went, oh my God, all those seats are looking at me. And I went, oh, I like this. <laughs> and I just kind of remembered that I wanted to stay right there in that spot. I didn't necessarily know I wanted to do it for a career. I just knew that I wanted to be there, in the center of all of that attention. And um, then I just uh, sort of contributed. Uh, I wasn't asked to contribute, but I sort of contributed by saying, hey, what if, you know, we go shake, 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 and roll, and, you know, I just... I just, it was sort of, I never made a decision, I guess is what I'm trying just to happens. say. It just, yeah. it just sort of <laughs> happened, and before I knew it, I uh, was at an audition for Jerome Robbins Broadway, and there was a man named Jerry Mitchell who was going, you're doing fine. <laughs> and I was terrified, and, and I wasn't getting uh, hired in regional theater in California. I was like, wait a minute, there's something really weird. Jerome Robbins Broadway is saying, we like you, and, you know, California Civic Light Opera no. is saying no, so I'm like, well, maybe I should go to New York. So came to New York, and that's just sort of how it happened. That's great. Charles? I, gu I guess I was in college. I went to Northwestern, and I wasn't cast at all, and 
any of the plays, and I didn't know if there was any place for me in the theater because I thought Northwestern was kind of a microcosm of showbiz. And um, I wrote a real wacky little play about a pair of Siamese twin showgirls named Hester and Esther. <laughs> and I put it on with myself, my friend Ed and I in, in drag, and I wrote it and I acted and I directed it and the whole thing. And um, the day of the show, uh, in the Daily Northwestern newspaper, it was a big picture of Ed and I in drag, and it said, Degeneracy reigns at Northwestern. <laughs> and I knew I was on the right track. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a great, great success. You know, they're, they're still talking about it at Northwestern. And uh, I really did kind of think after it was over, I, 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 I actually it was, it became ill. I was mm -hmm. so, the whole experience was just so overwhelming <laughs> that I, in being sort of the dramatic type, I, I shot myself into the, the infirmary for a sleep cure, you know, <laughs> for about a week, you know, the sleep mask, you know, if they're, what's he doing, you know? And, um, but uh, when it was over, uh, the, my catharsis, I, I thought, I think this is who I am, and, and maybe everything that's weird about me is what's special about me. That's great. Mm -hmm. Jerry? I was five. I was five years old. I went to tap class with my next-door neighbor, Amy Firestone, <laughs> and I sat in the seats and I watched her take tap and baton, and she was dancing to the baby elephant walk. I was not in the class. I was just watching. I went home. She put on the recorder, and she was on the back porch, and she was trying to remember the routine, and I looked at her, and I said, you're not doing that right. And I got up, and I grabbed the baton from her, and I showed her the routine. And to this day, she reminds me. That day, I went home, and I sat my mom down, and I said, Mom, I'm going to be in theater. Don't get in my way. <laughs> I was five. I was five. Very good. That's it. John? I have a, a, a family story that um, I, I, had, I had been, um, I had already gone to uh, graduate school in directing at UCLA. I had, had a Fulbright to study theater in Europe. I had assisted at the Old Globe Theater for a year and a half. Um, and I had been insisting. I had no money whatsoever. I went home to, to Texas to visit, and um, I had no prospects, no place coming my way. Uh, maybe another assisting job. And uh, I was heading back to, actually at this time, uh, to, to New York, and my father was driving me uh, to the airport. My father is an aerospace engineer for NASA, has been since 1965. He builds uh, space stations and things like that. Really does not understand what, what the theater is. 30 seconds. And, and um, he, um, he, he said to me, I work with guys your age who have houses, who have cars, who have uh, divorces, who have um, uh, high-paying jobs. And I see them at their desks, and they're very unhappy. And he says, you have one thing. You may not have any money. You may not have a house. You may not have anything. But you have one thing that they don't have. You're doing what you love. Mm -hmm. So don't mm -hmm. stop. Mm -hmm. and, I'm uh, so sorry to have to interrupt it. you. I'd like to hear more of that. Yes. I'm sure the whole audience would, too. But we have to say goodbye and say that this is the American Theatre Week seminar on working in the theatre, and it's on the choreographer, the director, and the playwright. And it's a wonderful combination. You're also articulate. I wish that we could just go on and on with this, because I've learned a great deal. So thank you so much for thank being you. here, and thanks to everybody for being here.
Thank you.